Hello there, and thanks for joining us here at Lions Guide, where we empower you with the resources you need to reach heightened levels of success in your performance, business, and leadership. On these episodes, we set out to explore the stories of our guests and the lessons they've learned. We also interview various subject matter experts and review books and other resources all designed to help you establish clarity, have courage, and lead the way. I'm your host, Dale Walls, and I'm the founder of Lions Guide. And on this episode, we've got Mrs. Laura Colbert. And Laura is an Army veteran who spent over a year in Baghdad, Iraq, during the 20-year war on terror as a military police officer. Laura also holds two master's degrees in experiential education and the other in educational leadership. And in this episode, uh, myself and Flip go through and discuss her book, which is titled How to Pee Standing Up or Sirens, which is a memoir of her time deployed in the Middle East war zone and documents the key life and leadership lessons she took away from her experience. Uh, Laura is awesome, and you're going to love the chat. So if you like the sound of that, before we get started, hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content. And we've always got a ton going on over here at Lions Guide. So we've got the upcoming release of our long-awaited course for everyday leaders that'll be coming out mid-September 2022. And before we transition into final production, I want to make sure that our outline topics and content meet the needs of you, the everyday leader. So if you're interested in helping us out, we put together a quick survey where you can rate yourself in various leadership areas and answer a few questions out there on lionsguide.com. So the Lions Guide Everyday Leader Survey lets you rate yourself in the areas of communication, change, mentorship, culture, decision-making, and also self-reflection. So have you mastered everyday leadership? Well, let's see where you stand. And in doing so, help us put together our next great course to help you improve. Find out with our Everyday Leader Survey on lionsguide.com. And with that all said, let's start the show. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, everybody, to the Flip Live Streamcast Live. As always, it is me, Flip. And on top today, we have our special guest. Uh, not, I mean, I guess you're not special anymore since you come on every month. <laughs> but you're very special to us. Uh, we got Laura Colbert here. As always, my guest host on the rant on the first week. Uh, and then we got down below, we've got, yep, there he is, the boss, the one, the only. Uh, we got Dale. Uh, today's special for us because we finally get to talk to Laura about her book, right? So she is an author, award-winning, audible, uh, Google Play at Walmart, at Barnes and Nobles. So she had to tell me this morning about it. Um, <laughs> she's that much of a baller. Um, there you go, right? We both got it. We both read it. Um, she read it to me on the audible version for everybody else, but it's how to be standing up or sirens. Uh, and it's a great and alarming memoir of combat and the coming home. And so welcome, my friend. Thank you. Thanks yeah, for having me. Absolutely. Dale, you doing okay? Doing great, man. All right. Doing I don't want to leave you out. I don't want to leave you out. So, uh, so listen, we are here to talk finally about the book. Uh, Laura and I have avoided it, I will tell you, as much as we we could over the past two months uh, because we were waiting for today uh, to be able to do it. And so 
she read it to me, like I told you. She's on, it is on Audible and it is on Google Play, and and she reads it. Uh, she read it in the closet of her house. So we'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll give everybody, which is awesome, because uh, I was reading some reviews today. I have to admit, I went back to like Good Reader, and I was reading some reviews, and everybody's like, it's like she was talking right to me, and I was thinking to myself, I'm like, she was literally talking, <laughs> and explaining stuff to you, which I thought was amazing. So. Um, but it was good. So welcome here. Um, couple couple side notes before we start today. I am wearing, so I got to do my, my dad thing today. I am wearing the national championship hat. We were down in Florida last weekend and my daughter made second place in the nation for goalkeeper, uh, an event called Keeper Wars that's sponsored by youth soccer, United States Youth Soccer. And she took second place overall in the nation for her age group. So I was so proud of her. So thank you very much. So what's it's her on, age group? 15? It's on film. So you 16 and you 17. So basically, yeah. So high school, basically high school ages is what it was. And so she took second place overall. So proud of her and what she did. 97 degree heat. She went to the most. She made it to the wildcard rounds. I was just, it's got to be on film. So I need to put it on there. So that's good. That's awesome. Um, yeah. How tall is she? 5'11". So she's okay. very tall. She's getting your height. Close, right? You know that I was a goalkeeper? I know you were a goalkeeper. I know it all. Laura, how tall are you? Six. Six foot even? Nice. 5'11 and three quarters. I am 5'11 and three quarters. High five. Nice. Oh, got, oh my God. My, my father is 6'5". And oh. all growing up, everyone was like, you're going to be a... Big as your dad, you're gonna be. Uh, my dad is a retired prison guard or whatever, but he's a big dude. And um, everyone's like, "You're gonna be as big as your father. You're gonna be as big as your father, whatever." So back in, I, I'm an '80s baby, so I don't know if you guys remember those milk commercials, where it's like the little Johnny, and he's like the girl turns him down. And he's like, "Yeah, but I'm drinking milk." And then it has like the end scene where he's like all you know, muscular and tall, or whatever. So I'm like watching them. Everyone's in my ear going, "You're gonna be as big as your dad." And I'm like, drinking milk. Five foot, 11, three quarters. That's all I got. My son, who's 13, is taller than me at 6'2 right now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I am taller than both my parents. I am an anomaly. <laughs> so I think my mom might be watching, but I was adopted. So my parents are like five eight and a half and like five four, five three. So I'm uh, and 6'2 way, way above everybody. Yeah. But... Enough about us. Let's talk about you, uh, Mrs. Redshirt, and talk about the book. So great book. Um, really having been over there as well, a lot of I, I had a lot of and I'm sure a lot of veterans who listen to us can relate to kind of what the uh, culture shock was about mm -hmm. going over. But one of the first questions I really wanted to talk to you about was you do a great job in the very beginning of saying, so there I was going to Wisconsin and right. And so, yeah, yeah. You wore your Wisconsin shirt today. I see. So I guess the question was, is like, you know, you had mentioned your friend was, was basically like, what can happen? And then all of a sudden nine 11 happens. So at, at that point, but one thing I did note, this is where the $2 bill come in later and everything else. But, but, you had a history of people in the military as an MP. So, right. I mean, so it wasn't somebody in there. Yeah. My, okay. you know, it's so interesting because I never, ever, ever considered <clears throat> my family a military family. But then going back, I realized that my dad served during Vietnam. He enlisted right before he was drafted. So he had some choices. And then he <clears throat> was at Fort Hood 
and did it as a military police officer and did a ton of training regiments and just kept doing training and training. So when his MP unit was deployed to Vietnam, he stayed behind because he was finishing up his POW or canine training or whatever it was. And then ended up pitching on the Fort Hood baseball team and got to stay behind and do admin stuff and work at the POW jail and, or not POW, MIA jail. Um, And, uh, and uh, my brother was a medic during the the Iraq yeah. Um, yeah. war, so he was there when I was deployed for a majority of the time yeah, we'll, um, we'll, in Ramadi. We'll, we'll talk about that too. Yeah, yeah. and um, I've got tons of uncles, and my father-in-law served in Vietnam and was um, he was working with Agent Orange. He would wring his shirt out at the end of the day because he was the one just spraying it everywhere and you know suffering a ton of men- or not mental ton of um, physical health. Sure. Yeah. What they, whatever they were telling him, right? Yeah. Oh, they're like it's perfectly, it's perfectly. (laughs) So they would take water and pour it into these empty jugs without rinsing the empty jugs out, and then they would shower with those same jugs that just had Agent Orange in them. That's that's uh, it's interesting because uh, there's a great book out there by Annie Jacobson about um, uh, the Pentagon's brain, and it talks about. That was a whole defoliage campaign because they were trying to start a forest fire, basically the, the largest forest fire ever. So they were trying to, but they couldn't because it was so humid they couldn't get yeah. it out there. So it was just interesting about it. But huh. so let's so let's let's do this. So for those who haven't read the book, give me give me a quick overview. I know I kind of yeah. dove right in because I've I've obviously read it twice, but give 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 everybody a quick overview for what if they haven't read it, what it, what it really was about, and what. Because there's a couple of themes running through it, I think, that um, I picked out. But but give them, in your own words, what you think. Sure. So um, the book is broken up into five different sections. One, me, who I was before, um, getting there. And we were one of the first permanent establishments in after the Marines came through. In fact, we live in a bombed-out building. It was, there was no military establishments developed. So I call that the liberating part of our our, our time over there. And then it moved into occupying. So we went from being kind of these heroes to occupiers who were now getting hit with IEDs and roadside bombs. And it became really, really, um, really scary. And then um, just like returning home and then like the rest of my life dealing with post-traumatic stress and some of those stories. Cool. Um, And so... And so, not to start a not to start a, a military war here on our pot, on our streamcast, but just in case everybody else doesn't know, uh, Laura's Army, I'm Navy, and Dale's Marine. So we have all three uh, <laughs> services. We're missing an Air Force person and Coast Guard and Space Force, I guess. But we have three of us, so we understand. And here's a funny. Here, so what you mentioned too, I think, is really important for for those who don't know and weren't military wise. Um, Marines got went in first because they are that force, the amphibious force that will go in, clear house, and kind of establish. And their goal is then to pull out and let army come in and occupy. And that is that is a uh, especially especially I would say, and I'm going to say regular army, not not meaning the Rangers or not meaning special forces or that, but regular army are that job. So that is literally part of your job was to do was to occupy and and to to create right you were there to establish lines of communication to teach and educate that kind of stuff correct yeah, yeah. it was so interesting too because um and you know if you read the book you'll find that it took us we were deployed two days or three days before we even invaded iraq so we were put on 
on active duty. And then we sat at Fort McCoy for a month and a half. And then we sat in Kuwait for a month and a half. And this whole time we're getting completely conflicting results on what our job is going to be and where we're going to go. So at first, okay, we're going to stay stateside and take over for a company who was going over. And then it was like, well, we'll go to Kuwait and we'll play and we'll be back up. And then it was like, you're going to Baghdad. So when we finally got there again, it was a little bit like, what are we going to do? Are we going to patrol? Are we going to escort? And then it ended up that majority of our deployment was training Iraqi police officers on how to be proper police officers. A lot of them were right off the street and they just wanted that $100 bill consistent paycheck. Um, and some of them were old police officers who lived in a very corrupt society. And we saw tons and tons and tons of the um, repercussions of, of being in that type of society. And, and, and we had to try to manage that when or if we found out about it, which was also another hurdle. Um, so that was really interesting. And we did a lot of escort missions for some pretty renowned um, politicians and ambassadors and stuff like the UN ambassador from Australia was one of the people who called on us the most. In fact, one of his security guards proposed to a girl in my squad and they were engaged for about six months. <laughs> oh, that goes to show like how much time we spent with them. Mm, deployment love. Oh yes. It's out he was, there. He was like yes. 25 years her senior too. So. <laughs> deployment love. It's all out there. Yeah. Um, and it's in the book. It's actually talked about in the book, which I think is really cool too, which is what you do. So, so let me ask this though, again, we'll get into the leadership part. I just want to cover a couple bases from it. Mm -hmm. You not only had the shock of 9-11 and the shock of, holy crap, this is what I'm doing, right? Even though I guess now looking back on it, you realize, well, this is kind of part of my family. It's kind of part of yeah. in my DNA, if you will. Uh, and most people know the story. When I met my family a few years back that I hadn't seen, uh, my brother was in, my sister was in the Marines. My brother was in the Army. So somehow, someway, it was in the bloodline, if you will, um, which is interesting fact. But I guess then you get the shock of, and I guess the unknown shock, if it's there, it's kind of a different type of a shock. But now it's like, uh, where are we going? What are we doing? Right? You're trained to do a job and there's 17 different versions of it and you're being pulled around and there's a lot of hurry up and wait. Right? Oh. I mean, that sounded like what it's a lot of is a hurry up and wait. And that could be, I think, probably this, frustrating. This book would have been twice as long if I would have put all of my <laughs> journal entries in here that said same, 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 same. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. That's good. Um, so speaking of, what made you keep a journal? I mean, the, did you have yeah. a plan on doing the book or did you just were like, I just want to do this in case or? You know, I think, I think somebody had bought it for me, like maybe perhaps my parents or some other mentor in my life and said, you know, if you want a journal, we recommend it because you're going to want to remember this and you have no idea what's going to happen. And, and as I was there journaling and, and there was pretty profound moments, um, and it, and it, and I realized like, this is not, this is a, this is a good story to tell that I started realizing like, I'm going to change this into a book someday, you know, and then 14 years went by and I'm got this thing perseverating in my brain and I just couldn't get it into fruition until I got my editor and publisher. And then she really helped guide me through. That's good. That's really yeah. good. Yeah. That's good. Um, so let's get into some leadership stuff because I think that's that's the crux of a lot of this and that's mm. definitely why we're here on the flip side. But you saw a bunch of different leaders, right? So we let's let's take uh, let's let's separate them into a couple different things. You saw military. Let's talk military leaders in in general first, right? 
you had definitely different leadership styles going on. I found it very cruel is not the word. I just thought unnecessary for some of the stuff that your leaders did, but talk about leadership styles that you saw and what was, what was effective and maybe, and maybe it wasn't one that you liked, but it could have been effective and yeah. you didn't like as well. Right. So there's a couple of parables there because you didn't, you were young. You're, I mean, you're still young at the time when you went out there, you don't really know very much. We were pulling a lot of people off the streets, you know, first year of college, just out of high school, which is kind of where you fell into. So you're not knowing enough. And, and now it's, you've had time to reflect, look back on those and go, what was good? What was bad? What worked? What didn't in common? Yeah. So I was 21 and I had my 22nd birthday while I was there. Yep. Um, my, it's so interesting because my direct line of leadership, I would say were profoundly good. Um, my team leader, his name, um, Ken Prier, it's different in the book. It's hard in the book. Um, I have gotten permission during other talks to say his name out loud. So I think he's okay with that. No worries. Um, he, you know, what's interesting. You're, you're deployed with a human being for 16 months. So you're going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly of every sure. single human being. And you, there's no more stressful time than being at war. So like, even though there's some parts in the story that don't shed him in the most positive light, he was, he, he was, and is an incredible human being. In fact, I just went on a golf outing with him on the 11th of July. So um, get to see him often enough. Um, And then, um, so he was great. My squad leader was great. And then my platoon sergeant were great. And what made them so great is that they had, they had lots of time in already their decisions were always for the best of our platoon or the best of the squad or the team. And, and, and the, the decisions were, this is what we're going to do. And it wasn't like, Oh, should we do this? Should we do this? So they, they were decisive. They were decisive. Exactly. And, and you knew that you could trust their judgment because of who they were as human beings. Now um, there was a few leaders. I'm not even going to say what level they were at or anything, but there was a few leaders who would literally come to us and say, what do you think we should do? And I'm like, uh, you went, you went to OCS or whatever it was that they went to. I'm like, you have, you got the training, not me. Like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Yeah. And then we had other leaders who I knew profoundly that this was not a good decision to make, like going down a a dead end street or a one way. And we're going like situations that were going to put us in a potential ambush, um, future ambush situation. And, and I was sitting there like, this is not a good idea. We shouldn't do this. And they're like, just do it anyways. I had other leaders. You said it to them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I said it to who I could say it to, but they're making this decision like, you know, 10 cars down or cars (laughs) down. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, so I, I mean, I was, all, I didn't want on article 15 too. So I'm not going to like, just like tell them to their face. Sure. But he, I think the kicker and what is so interesting about this next story I'm going to tell you is when I, re- when I reread my journal entry on this, it was, it was like this long on half a page. But now as, as somebody who deems himself as a natural leader, I, I this page deserves 12 pages because the leadership was so faulty. So we had been there for um, nine months. We'd already gotten many purple hearts. We'd already been eliminated from going into certain parts of the city that were incredibly dangerous. And we got a whole new brigade, which is the highest level for the MP Corps. And we were tasked, my specific squad of 10 was tasked to um, escort 
the brigade and go wherever they told us to go. I was a driver of the Humvee. That was my job. I kept my mouth shut. I drove wherever they told me to drive. <laughs> so they're brand spanking new. They have no communication set up except for one Humvee. They don't tell my Humvee where we're going. So I, I have no idea how to, what's the word? I, I mean, if we got stuck somewhere, I wouldn't even know where to, where to go. I just go, go back to the compound that we were staying right. in. And they took us to the three most dangerous parts of Baghdad. To and see we, it. To see it. We passed underneath a bridge. It's called the Death Bridge. <laughs> twice. And it's called that because Iraqis would throw grenades into the turrets of Humvees. And we passed under that twice. There was a marketplace that was incredibly dangerous. And they actually got out of the Humvee and started walking through the marketplace, clumped up into a tiny little group. And when you're at war... <laughs> It's the last thing you do. You spread out. Right. So somebody. It's called a patrol. <laughs> What's that? It's called a patrol and you stay at least X amount of feet away. I mean, who are these guys? And yeah. while I'm driving very slowly next to these guys, um, my window's down because it's probably 100, 110 degrees outside. Somebody throws something in my lap. A civilian throws something in my lap. And we're still right next to that grenade bridge. And I, I was like, this is it. I'm going to die. But you know, reflex kicks in. I grab what it was and I started to throw it out thinking like, okay, I, maybe I can, you know, get that one second and get the grenade out and still survive. Then it was just lollipops. It was suckers in my lap. <clears throat> Anyways, fast forward. There's tons of other stories that go along with this, but in the end they had set one captain had said to another, why did you even take us? Why'd you even take me off my desk today? I thought we were going to see some action. So their whole prerogative was to get attacked and they put my life on the line to do that. They wanted to have war stories. Mm. So that's not a good leadership. There's, there's some toxic, where where does, where does that fall into your uh, list of uh, good, bad and toxic flip? Uh, It's toxic. It's, it's, (laughs) it's, Wow. Listen, I so I know you have a question. I'm going to let you get I have to it. A but question, I, man. I, I have a question. Listen. Oh, I got a lot of questions now. A, a really good friend of mine sent me. So there's part of it that I understand. Let me just put this out there. My best friend, I love him to death, uh, was a Marine, was over in Ramadi doing, like, was in there when it was the shit. Um, he wrote me a letter that I keep upstairs in my in my keepsake thing that said, Hey man, if you have a choice, don't come, right? Don't don't come over here. It's crazy. It's whatever. I remember getting it and thinking to myself, no, like I gotta, like, I gotta test. Like there was part of me that was like, I have to do this for some, I don't know, naturalistic, some right, Spartanish freaking whatever. And I, I I knew he knew better than me. He had way yeah. more experience. He and and where he was, Dale was kind of where it was more of a, he was definitely in with the people going in. Right. So he, he was the ones you relieved, uh, Laura. Right. Mm-hmm. I was going in on the back end anyways, doing something very different in the, in, in aircraft and, and, and that for things, but that naturalistic. So on, on a very small level, I get what they're trying to say and what they wanted on a leadership level. And as a just pure idiocy level, that is incredibly selfless to put that many people at, at risk for absolutely nothing. And yeah. you could have the same stories 
of people saying, I manage those people walking out. There's plenty of people right now doing things that went, I manage the people doing that. And they took a ton of leadership from them. Jocko will tell you in his stuff, life will tell you in his stuff, hey, we sent people to go do that stuff. And there's leadership lessons in that, that people that they didn't have to have bullets fly by them. And that's not saying about Jocko and them, but you didn't need bullets to fly by you. Obviously they're young. They're just like everybody else, right? They're, they're butter bars coming out going, I need this stuff. That's happened through like Vietnam. Everybody said that. Let me go get in the stuff. Right. I mean, uh, all that kind of thing. There's a a difference in like doing your job versus looking for trouble. Right. It's like a, it's like an MMA fighter in the ring at a scheduled match doing his, his or her job versus one that goes to the bar and looks for a fight, right? Like there's distinct uh, manners of intention there. And and it sounds like these were the guys that were going to the bar looking for a fight and just, but the, the, the severity of that, like, you know, that's just silly. Um, but anyways, moving on, we can, we could judge that all day, but, um, the question I have for you, Laura, you were mentioning, cause I see this a lot, right. And, and man, I feel like today's leaders were so gun shy cause we've got this now everyone is entitled to everyone and entitled <laughs> to their opinions and judgment. So you're talking about, you know, I'm curious about these decisive and directive mm-hmm. leaders, versus what I'll call the democratic leaders, right? Every, Hey, mm-hmm. we want everyone's vote, right? And I, I'm not, I've seen the challenges that I'm kind of interested in maybe what you saw between the impact of a decisive leader versus a democratic mm-hmm. leader and what that does to the, those they're following. Well, I'll tell you when you're in a war zone, it is a little different than being in, you know, a boardroom um, because there were decisions that needed immediate action um, so for example, the very first time we were ever shot at, um, the leaders are like, everybody get down. QRF is blah, 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 blah. Follow me. We're going to go to the wall. And that was, I was part of that QRF and, you know, we got all our gear on, we went to the wall, <laughs> like, you know, in hindsight realized our, our walls are 15 feet tall. There's no way they can shoot that far across the Tigris. Like, we're just like, we're, we're so green and it was just kind of pathetic, but the fact of the matter was they were making immediate decisions on how to counteract this. If we were indeed the ones that they were aiming for, again, we didn't know if the bullets were in the air shooting towards us. After a while, you realize you can tell the difference because a whistle accompanies bullets that are aimed at you. Um, so at any rate, um, that was just a, a really pure example of them moving into immediate action. Now, granted, um, if there was something that was not of the essence, they would they would talk to us about it. There are a few times, and I talk about this in my book, I'm, I'm a person of logic, and um, sometimes I just need a little bit more information to help me move forward. Um, and so, so Ken Preer, our, my team leader, one time he's like, put the gear in the Humvee and we're, let's go. And I was like, okay, what gear, how much, where are we going? Because I need to know, should I pack up nice and condensed? Should I just throw it all in there? And he, he got mad at me for asking. And that was just like our, our communication breakdown between the two of us. He was stressed. I was stressed. Um, that came out a few times in the book, but for the most part, he was, he was incredible. And I know I'm not really answering your question right now, but I do think there's a definitely a time and place for device or decisiveness and for that de- democracy. And, and as a leader, I believe that a good leader is going to have both of those traits, 
right? If your team needs you to make a decision, make a decision and, and, and honor and, and um, play out that decision as best as you can and deal with any consequences that come after it. But if it's a decision that we can make collectively and everybody has buy-in, let's do that too. Yeah, 100%. And there's that accountability piece, right? Because I feel like sometimes like those decisions that a leader wants to kind of pawn off on the team, but it's it's their decision to make. And I feel like sometimes that's a that's a tactic to avoid the accountability to the result, right? You know, because then you can go, well, hey, well, you guys voted, right? Like you guys um, voted, you wanted yeah. to do this. It's not my fault, right? And I feel like... I love what you said, right? Like that's ownership though. There, yeah. Right? There's a dichotomy yeah. of when do you right. go get feedback? And I've kind of felt to learn that, you know, approaching those situations, I do want to take ownership sometimes in defining a solution, but then taking it to the team and going, what do you see? How do you guys see this? Right? Like, what do you, what do you see? And then maybe, maybe even without presenting your solution, right? You go say, Hey, here's the issue. What do you guys think you're solving? And then you could maybe bring it back to your plan and kind of make your tweaks and make a final decision or whatever. But yeah, I think there's, there's different tiers of that, but I fear, and I bring this up because I wanted to kind of point out that sometimes leaders need to be the one to make the decision. Everything doesn't need to be a vote. There's times that you have to make the call. It's, mm -hmm. it's your call to make and your responsibility to make it and and you're going to be the one accountable for it. Yeah. Welcome to leadership. Um, but I feel like sometimes leaders maybe are confused in that, or maybe even mm -hmm. kind of, you know, shy away from doing it so that they can have a scapegoat that isn't them. I think if you have the ownership piece down, you have a lot more flexibility than of, of being able to say, okay, let me open it up. So take, take, for example, you, Laura, take Ken, right? It's Ken. Take Ken and then take who he reported to. The linchpin in all that is him, right? In my, in my view, you don't know enough. And the other people on the other side don't necessarily know enough either, right? Mm. They're getting information and they're getting orders from an above. But Ken, Ken hears both sides, right? Mm. He gets both of those things as like a, a senior enlisted would, would, would somewhat be. And by the way, he's in the action with you. Mm -hmm. And then he's also in the decision room with everything else. And I think that's one of the things too, Dale, to your point, you know, Mattis talks about skip echelon leadership where you, he went right to the youngest lieutenant and said, what the what's going on? I need to know so I could make major decisions at a three star level. And he was skipping 04s, 05s, 06s in between because he was like, I need to hear it from them. And he didn't want it filtered and he mm. didn't want it all the BS that was involved with it. We and, and you said something, Laura, that I think is really important. It goes to Dale's point, too. There's a difference between we're getting shot at and mortared <laughs> versus everything else that is there. And we sometimes all go, and, and I've said this plenty of times, all of our, everything in the military is written in blood. That's not necessarily true. There is danger in everything we do. It's, and, but, but we can't just go to the extreme because what happens when you have that greenhorn who goes, let's go to the market as a group. That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. That's stupid. And we're going to cross this bridge and we're going to die because like the chance is just, it's not worth it. Right. Especially the thing as opposed to run to your wall. Let's figure it out. Oh, 15 foot wall. Now we know next time. <laughs> all right. 
Now we know, like, we can take it back. What did people see? And I think after action stuff, right, is so whatever you do. If you're making a decision as a leader, go back when you have the time, if it's available, you know, to Dale's point, sometimes you need to be decisive, right? Which is what it was. Just shut up, listen to me, right? Shut up in color, do what you're supposed to do. (laughs) It's okay. But I think think leaders also, whether they'll admit it or not, I feel like, and again, Naylor walks up to me later and goes, why did we do it like that? When, when we're off, you know, when we're off shift, there's someone in that and there's an introspect I take in and I'll bet Ken did too of saying, oh yeah, like I'm not going to admit to her of what, you know, whatever, but I, I understand it and it makes me think it makes me change. And I think good leaders good leaders do that. Right. And then they take it up and, and whatever else. So, um, but yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a great, great point. Dale's Dale's point too. I think, I absolutely think indecisiveness is absolutely one of the worst things you can do. I mean, granted you make the wrong decision, but you make a decision and you, you know, you, you have the or, people's best interest when you make it. Or here's the thing. And this is a lot more for like the boardroom leaders than the, than the war zone ones is, if you don't have an answer, say, I'll get it, or I'll let me research that a little bit more. It's okay not to have it immediately, but do your, do your research, get, get educated and then make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. Dale, I love to say like a clouded mind says no, right. You can, you can kind of say like, if you're almost taken the same way, right. Indecisive is going to lead towards the wrong answer, right. It's going to, yeah. it's going to lead towards stumbling because you're going to lose so much more as well. Right. Be- yeah. Behind it. So, um, yeah, no, that's, I, I think that's good. I think that's definitely what you saw. So I got in, I'll admit to everybody about this next one. I think it was, it's definitely a female male question. You had talked a lot about being female, uh, and, and what that was entailing. I'm not going to talk about the culture of what it's like to be in the middle East. Obviously it is a very different than we have in America as we're, we strive for equality and, and, and try to hit those marks where it's, that's not even something that's thought about over in the Middle East at all necessarily. Definitely not in the war zone. It was not like that at all. But did you find, uh, how hard was it to overcome, I guess, uh, the challenges of being female, not only with your, cause I think, I think it was, you had a lot of females in your group. And I think one thing I want to point out too, and this was very different from Dale and I, and correct me if I'm wrong, you went with basically a group from your area in the United States, right? Yes. So you had a lot of bonding to say, we're all Badgers or white or go Packers, whatever the, whatever you guys wanted to do. There was already some bonding you guys could have and say, do you remember this lake? Like you guys could fall back on a lot of stuff versus Dale and I's experience was it's everybody from everywhere. And we just try to figure it all out is what we go. Oh yeah, I did that too. So, but I, but I wanted to say with with a, with the, from the female perspective, did you find it? Uh, I don't want to say hard, like I know the scale of this, so I won't, I don't want to minimize it. But did you find it harder, or or was it somewhat sometimes easier to to Could you play the card if you needed to, and if not, like you get my point? Yeah. How was um, that experience for you? So first, it's go pack go is what we okay. say. Sorry, <laughs> whatever. Whatever. Is that go pack go? Aaron Rodgers just showed up looking like Con Air to training camp. I don't want to hear anything. Again? I, what else? Okay. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna yes. rewind and then I'm gonna back forward and we'll, we'll hit all the points that you just brought up. Um. Okay. Oh, no. That's all I'm saying. All right. Keep going. 
first and second platoon in our yep. company of four platoons were mostly from Milwaukee. Right. And then third and fourth platoon were mostly from the Madison area. So yes, there was definitely this camaraderie of we are from this very defined place in Wisconsin. We did get a few people from Milwaukee who filled some of our holes in um, our platoon. And I will tell you, it was really difficult to accept them at first. You kind of felt like we just got the, like the weakest link, yada, yada, ended up like, they're all great. They're all great. And it's, sure. um, so then going back to the female thing, everything I've done in my life, I've been, I've been fighting this stigma, if you will. You know, I had two brothers. I was always trying to compete with them. I, um, have been an athlete my whole life. I've always wanted to play like tackle football with the guys out during recess, you know, um, PE teacher, there's more men in that. Um, even when I became a principal, it was, Oh, you're so young to be a principal and flip you. And I have talked about this already. Yes. Just like always these, these certain kind of biased or stereotypical questions that I'm being asked or things that I, um, have to put up with. Um, but I will tell you, my goal has always been to keep myself to the men's physical um, training standards, the PT standards. So I would never even look at the women's. I always want to reach the, the men's max. Um, I really prided myself on the fact that I could lift up a 76 pound Mark 19 grenade launcher onto the top of the Humvee by myself, even though like they always said, it's a two person carry. Um, <laughs> so I always really strive to be as equal as possible so that, um, there was never an excuse for them to look at me other than that. So now going back to our company specifically, we did a really good job of maintaining um, equality among the soldiers. I really do 100% agree that our leadership did a good job of not treating the women differently than the men. Um, going back to being a, a, a woman specifically just at war, I mean, I got on birth control that I could skip my period. Um, obviously, according to the name of the book, I learned how to pee using a funnel. So I did <laughs> pull my pants down or, um, or knock on somebody's door to use their bathroom so I could stand up, open the Humvee door, stand up and pee just like the guys could. It was hilarious when Iraqi police officers saw me and they're like, wait a second, how are you peeing? And then I pulled up the funnel and I'd be like, oh, okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, and, and there was like, <clears throat> and I talked about this in another podcast I was in, like, I couldn't even wear a bra because um, when you're wearing a 40 pound vest that in that heat and you're constantly sweating, there's so much chafing already happening that like a bra would just exacerbate that. And you just be raw and like bleeding in certain places. So um, you just didn't need one because, you know, the weight of that vest kept everything in place anyways. Yeah. Just all these things that men don't have to think about or deal with um, in that kind of level. Now, um, we have things that hang off us too that can be very um, restrict, just so you know, and just in case, just so everybody okay. understands. Too. Thanks. Yeah. Totally so a leadership topic we could talk about later. <laughs> hey guys, Dale here. And I wanted to take a quick break to invite you to join the launch of the Lions Guide community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique. Like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And, you know, what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against and it's pretty demanding. The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lions Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet, but exceed those demands on you and in doing so, find your joy again. 
If you're a growth-minded individual ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit lionsguide.com and sign up to join the Pride. The Pride is the Lions Guide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut, break into your next level, and join me on lionsguide.com, and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the Pride today. Now back to the show. Hey, Laura, real quick, like... I appreciate what you're saying around the physical equality and all these things you were doing and to dig into like the, why it was important to you, like give it, give that a little color. Like why was that important to you? Because, you know, I have some, I don't want to make assumptions here. Like why was the equality, but you, what you said was you wanted to adhere to the men's standard and kind of be able to do the things that the men could do, because even peeing standing up, so to speak, because of, I'll, I'll dare say, like the efficiency of it compared to what a woman typically has to deal with, right? Like, mm-hmm. can you give more color on like why you chose to uh, to go to that standard as opposed to what we see a lot of today? Is like you need to uh, adapt to me because I'm a woman, and, and I'm not saying there's anything against that per se, but I'm saying you chose to, yeah. Well, okay, so I think I think the Me Too movement was a way for the women to like say, "Hey, come to our like adhere to us," right? That that I was there many, many, many years before the Me Too movement, so I was just trying to create as much equality as I could with the capacity that I had in that time frame. Um, I've always, hmm. Yeah, I guess I've always just tried to reach that higher level. I've always tried to hold myself to the highest standard. And and in the military, the men had the highest standard. It's the same thing when I go golfing. It just, I want to I want to tee off from the men's tees, not the women's. Because, you know, it's just like who I am. But is it, is it, I guess what I'm, and I'm trying to get clarity even to what I'm trying to ask. So bear with me. Is yeah. it, um, because I appreciate that you're trying to, find equality by keeping the bar high instead of finding equality by bringing the bar lower. Is that making, am I making sense? Like you're saying, Hey man, I don't, I don't want lesser standards because it it, there's the word I wrote down here was it seemed like you were discovering that there was a necessity for you to adhere to the higher standards rather than not. And did you see as a result of maybe some other female soldiers or troopers that chose to maintain just the women's standard that maybe the men then looked looked down upon as far as their capability and stuff like that. Like, as I feel like you're going, man, I want these guys to know that I can run with them. I can lift the 75 pound things. I want to whatever. I did not want to give anybody any excuse to treat me lesser than. And so I was taking, I was eliminating all of that. Yeah. Lesser than what? Lesser than themselves, lesser than the top man, lesser than the top performer. I mean, I, I was in the top running group of basic training, you know, like 
any any competitive sport I've been in in college or in high school, I've always esteemed to be the best. Like that's just who I am. I'm I'm not going to hold myself. If there's a separation between men and women, I'm not going to hold myself to the women's standards. I'm going to go for the best in the men's too. But the men's um, aren't the best. This is the constant fight we have all the time with everything. Yeah, is that is that we there one? There's always a difference. There's two people here on this call with very different parts than one or the other one, right? And they're very different. Okay, period. Well, I think I think what I was trying to angle to is not necessarily that men and women are different uh, biologically of sense. What I was trying to get to was what I was hearing Laura say was the necessities of a soldier in combat. She felt bore the necessity of the higher standard set for men. And if she was going to be in the field, so to speak, expected to do the job alongside the men that she found it important to meet their standards rather than the ones that were given to her. I wanted them to know that they could 100% rely on me in any capacity they needed me. That's what I was hearing you say. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. You know, I was, I was stronger than some men in our company. I was, you know, like there's no doubt that there were some guys who just couldn't lift the Mark 19 or could run as fast or do as many pushups like that. There's no doubt. And like, in fact, I arm wrestled an Iraqi police officer and beat him and they like kicked him out of the police station. But do you think any of that stuff that you did better than those men put you above them in everybody's eyes? That that, that wasn't really the goal. The goal was just for them to know that they could rely on me physically. And, um, and, and for me to have a sense of pride, like, Hey, I'm just because of my gender doesn't mean that I'm any less of it. Yeah. Listen, so make this clear. I don't, The the, I'm a brilliant on the basic guy. Your number one job was to be an MP and to drive, right? Yeah. Which probably had zero to do with you being able to run, zero to with you having to do with, right? I mean, and we had to get that. I'm assuming the comms out. I could carry, you know, like I could do all that. I I think we get judged a lot on the fact of that we have standards for men and women, and they are different based upon physiological things is what we've traditionally taken them on. I would tell you, can you do the job or can't you do the job right up to what? Cause, because here's the problem. My, my friend had this problem before, right? When you, when you look at a standard, you look at the highest standard and you look at the minimum standard, right? There's a minimum standard for a reason saying you have to be able to do this, to be able to do the job. If everybody can meet that thing, no matter your sex in general, you're meeting the minimum. Now, whether you felt like you needed to go on the high end of it, because for a female, you were on the high end of whatever your standard. In fact, your highest standard for yourself was the lowest of the men's or it was the men's in general, right? Not the lowest of the men's, but you get my point of like, you were, you were trying to say this was it. Because when you, when you looked at the Iraqi police, that was a completely different, completely different world of, right? Like, she's a woman. Some of them were trying to marry you. Some of them were trying to kill you. Some of them were trying to write like very different when it came to it. But I've always looked at it because we've talked and you and I've talked about this too offline, which was, does the chivalry effect come in where we started to talk about, are we protecting because Dale, you remember. And, and I remember it too. If we had some, if we had a male dominated group, if we had a female in our group that could hang with us, we had one, Clara, and she hung, she she killed people in the swim, killed people medically, 
and she hung with everybody. So she was accepted. We knew we could, we could fall back on her, but we definitely knew also she was a woman, right? I mean, and I think that's probably the point of a lot of things and where maybe as an American society, we have this, we have these differences yet. We tried, we fight with inequality and, and similarities all the time that, that it, it look at your upbringing made you be how you were ambitious to be the highest and best you could be. Mm-hmm. My guess is, is probably you were the best woman physically that was on your platoon. Someone's tiny couldn't have lifted that 78 pounder, no matter what or shorter. Right. Correct. It wasn't going to happen regardless of it. Well, I was going to bring up that point because it could, it doesn't matter male or female, right? It's a choice right. of, of the standard to uphold. And I was just like, say honoring where Laura was kind of, yeah, how yeah, she yeah. was seeing it and what what she was capable of as as in and how she wanted to be how she wanted to contribute to the team in the face of the assessments right. of the job. Right. Yeah. And then there's one there's one more point I wanted to make about gender and we can move on. So I said how we were treated pretty equally within our our company, right? Everybody it, male female didn't matter. We had a very strong team. We had 30 or sorry, a very strong platoon. There's 33 women, 13 of us were female and we were comparable to all the other platoons that only had like four to seven females. But when we got outside of our company, like let's say special forces or um, infantry, they did treat us differently because we were women. And specifically um, when that new brigade came in um, after we had been there and gotten shot at and blown up and yada, yada, they said to one of our female gunners, even know how to use that thing. And she's like, you know, F you like, how would you, why would you say that to a woman who's been in combat for nine months? And, um, but like nobody in our company would ever say that to us. But that's just the kind of thing that I was like, right. not only can I, can I shoot this, I can shoot it just as good, if not better than you. Like that's, yeah. that was part of the reason. Like I just wanted them to know I was hundred percent on the same playing field. Yeah. It's always, it's like you said in the beginning, right? You're always trying to overcome something mm-hmm. to that effect where, right. As an E, what were you? E3, E2, E3, E4, as an E4, that oh one that came in later on, you were like, that's the dumbest thing. And you had way more after being there for a year, year and a half. You were like, that's you, you know, it did it didn't matter about your college degree that you had, right? It didn't management about your how well you did at officer training. It was I was here, you were there. And I think that's that plays to everything, right? I don't I think that's female and male aside of yeah. experience wise. Yeah. Look, dude, you shot your gun at a at a t- moving target in in Missouri, right? I shot my gun <laughs> at right at, at live people across the Tigris. There's yeah. a very big difference in all of that, not only psychologically, but just in general, right? When you're, when you have that kind of moving forward. So listen, we got 13 minutes left. I know we got to be on a tight time schedule today for today's thing, but I wanted to get into a little bit on what are, and and I'm going to say top three, but mm. whatever, if you want to harp on one, whatever you want to do, want to go more than that. Some of these leadership skills that you learned, my guess is, and I could be wrong, uh, and I think you alluded to it a little bit. You didn't realize about those things until later on. Mm-hmm. And now looking at you now in the jobs that you've had, being a PE teacher, being a, a school educator, being a school ad- administrator, being uh, parks and rec, being all the stuff that you've been and are, what are some of the top skills that you've taken away leadership wise? And, and let me do this. Give me one of those and give me one that you didn't even see until later on that you're like, man, that was one that now I'm like, oh, that was, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think the one I'm going to, I'm going to 
snag right away is um, you have to treat everybody human you or as like a, as a, okay. So compassion is one of my top two integrity and compassion are my top two um, yep. values. And if you don't show compassion to any, if you eliminate compassion from some people on your team, you're going to, they're inhuman at that point and, and they're not going to be respected. They're not, or they're not going to feel respected. They're not going to buy in. So, um, you know, those captains that took me for that joy ride, that was, they were not treating me as another respected human being. They were treating me as a pawn or as like, you know, a government issued device to drive them around the city. Um, and then when I got my second team leader, um, cause Ken got promoted while we were there. And so I got this other guy who treated me like absolute dirt. I mean, he, we never saw eye to eye and he was very demeaning and he like, put on these crazy stipulations when I wasn't, when I'm a good person, you know, and I, and we, he was a one year older than me. I'm like, well, who do you think you are? Like you have one more rank than I do and you're treating me like I am dirt. Um, he has since apologized after reading my book, which is incredible. Um, but like those situations just, it, it just tears you apart as a human being. So like treat every single employee you have as somebody who's highly respected and they will treat you the same way and it will actually make your business go forward. I don't want to harp on him. Did he ever tell you why? Did he ever introspectively look back and go, so why it was, he was a like Facebook that? message and it was really long. And he referenced yeah. how he was just really struggling with a lot of things in his life at that time. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Did he, was it the type of person he was or did he not know what he was doing? Right from a, right from a leadership perspective that back to flips, good, bad, toxic, you can be doing bad or toxic things and just not know. Or yeah. you could be doing bad and toxic things, and that's just who you are. Um, yeah, I don't think that's who he inherently is. I mm-hmm. think it was a really rough time for. for I think it boils down to control, right? You, you yeah. talk, I talk about spam all the time. I talk about power, and like you can see it in kids when you you see kids who are from broken homes mm-hmm. and they're trying to get control of friends by by being by calling a name or doing something, right? That's it. It was inherently what we had. I had a great friend. I've told the story all the time. I had a great friend. We were. Per- amazing friends. He had one more rank above me. We got there. He was feeling pressures and feeling things and dealing with stuff because he was in in charge. Uh, And we didn't see that side, but how it came out to us was it was not treating us like friends anymore. It was treating us like we have to be right. Mm -hmm. This is ranks and this is leave me alone. I need to be here and you need to, I think, and that we can all attest to this combat in general everybody's going to treat it differently we can only train so much take business your business is going to hit the fan at some point how you react to it or don't react to it and how you treat people to your point compassion wise look you could you could be stressed and still be compassionate to people and 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 explain that to them in some degree and not come out feeling like uh, you're inadequate about it, right? Because I think you would probably understand of saying, I get it. I, you know, I've, I've fallen into the trap of, of not seeing the compassion I had. We had Jimmy Haley on uh, here before. And I, dude, I was like, why are you not, why are you treating me like, like, and I didn't realize he was going through what he was going through. And so um, that's an interesting thing for him. I, I think, do you look back on it now and go, I understand it more, or is it still a, you know, like, okay, I get, I understand it. Not, not to say it was right in any way. It's never going to be justified, but mm-hmm. do you understand it from when, just from his small message? 
Um, I, I think so. And, and plus, you know, he was young too and, and thrown into this position that he wasn't probably prepared for. And, and it was, it was, the whole thing was just, yeah. I mean, and I practice forgiveness. So like, you know, I'm over it and it's fine. And, um, I think to your point of how important compassion is, right? Even being a subordinate, you can employ compassion even in the reverse, right? Because you've all talked about examples of being a subordinate where you've got a superior kind of doing bad or toxic leadership that, again, we're all perfectly human and we all put our pants one leg at a time that you go, hey, Joe, are you okay? Like, just this doesn't seem like, right? Like, even as a subordinate, because we are like... Because we're talking about this from a leader's perspective, recognizing that we're working with humans and having that compassion or whatever. But at the same time, our leaders are humans, too, that deal with that stuff. And that kind of comes to just like Laura's, like your story with um, Jimmy. Yeah. Well, I and I'll tell you, Dale, I did not have that mentality when I first got yeah. home. I was like on my list of people that I was going to punch if I saw them in person. You know, sure. I was so, so well, that's that's why I bring it up, right? right? Because we were all young in the military, right? Yeah. And, and we don't have that level of maturity. I mean, right, right, right. Yeah, but you know, it's all good now, and <laughs> we've moved on. But definitely an example of leadership that could be improved for sure. So what translated like that was obviously compassion, you know, you saw that one, but what, what trait has decisiveness translated for you oh, very much absolutely. or what, what's, what's a really good one that you're like, you know, cause that one was, a, that's a, that's a, that was done to you. Like do unto me the compassion piece that, that yeah. probably really drove it home. But what, what, give and me another. Also just the leaders need to be in the know. If you don't know something, you need to read about it. You need to learn about it. You need to figure it out so that so that you can you can help lead the cause. And and that was again something that 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 three levels of leaders did so well in my platoon. Is I I mean I knew that they knew all of their facts about the weaponry. That they knew everything they needed to know about the Humvees and everything that we were utilizing. So that if something broke down or didn't work, they would know how to fix it in a, in a heartbeat. And then also just military tactics in general and how to lead people and how to motivate them. I mean, they would just did great. That's good. Really good. Oh, good. Good to hear. Well, listen, Laura is always going to be here. We've got about six minutes left today because I know we have a hard stop uh, for this one here. Laura's going to be here uh, every single first Monday of the month. Um, speaking of compassion, we're hoping, <laughs> we're hoping uh, to get her uh, to bring her compassion-driven me to we uh, program to Lions Guide soon, hopefully maybe in the new year, and we can have that out, and she could you can have access to Laura more. Um, but in the meantime, uh, you can do a couple things. You can go to Audible and support her. You can go to Amazon, Walmart, Barnes and Nobles and support her with her book, How to Peace Standing Up or Sirens. And um, overall, from a perspective who has read it and had it read to me by by the author. Uh, I would tell you that it's it's a great perspective on many levels of leadership, a perspective from a woman, a perspective from how you journeyed through kind of from a you know a college student and all of a sudden you know you detailed very well the Vietnam style stuff which I thought was pretty in, in, intense and and heartbreak right when when and I, I don't want to minimize you guys had someone, you guys got incredibly lucky over there. Uh, and I say that with knowing that you did have, uh, 
specialist Whitmer uh, passed away and was was killed while you're over there. And that was probably a huge one of the 13, might I add, uh, of, of the women that that's what happened. So that's obviously very, very big. And how you're tra- transitioned to, to civilian life. I think right from the beginning, you talk about being a principal and checking checking uh, overhead panels, which I thought was was, was pretty in- it's just it brings probably Dale and I and you all back to the barracks back in the day of <laughs> trying to hide stuff away from our from our E five and E six you know barracks leader or whatever which I thought was was, was kept context in a in an Advil container so right. where the the BCGs during- right and, you know it's funny we look back on like those little decisions and we understand why somewhat the basis to them in in like well what if right but we look at what our like we ha- we were supposed to wear these prescribed leather gloves when we flew and most people wore mechanics or, you know, whatever, when it was just, it's just hilarious when you see it and what's reality and, and kind of how we have to catch up and you, you chronologic, you you did great job of putting that into some, some type of timeline when you talked about going to Missouri and you're like, Oh my God, like, what are we doing here? Like, this is, this is definitely nothing like we're about to go to. And, and, um, but anyways, we, 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 as always, and everybody else, uh, thank you for what you did and for your service to your country. Um, mm-hmm. And veterans can say that to veterans, by the way. Um, yeah, so it's good. And, and we love the book. So Thanks. I think there's one more piece that's really important for the yeah. viewers to know about. Um, sure. So the, the last chapter talks about like the moral injury and the post-traumatic yes. stress that occurs during war. Yeah. And it's not so much that I want you to hear about my story, but if you have other soldiers in your life, so if you want to better understand what soldiers go through, um, I've heard from many, many people that have read the book that it's helped them a lot to deal with these other people in their lives and to better understand what they um, have on their plates after they return from war. So just yeah, that. and uh, always got to plug, we'll have some more formal stuff coming out yes. um, probably in a September t- time frame. But I've talked to Dan Jarvis about bringing 220 as the official uh, charity partner of uh, Lions Guide. We're a portion of well, 20, 2.2% of our proceeds will go to support in 220. I've been volunteering with those guys for the last year. It's really impactful to clear PTS and those suffering from it. And mm-hmm. uh, um, firsthand to tell you, man, like I know it's there. We've, we all live with it in some form, whether it's military or not. And, uh, and there's a way, uh, 22 zero has a really f- effective way, uh, to clear that out. And, um, I can't speak highly enough about the work those guys are doing over there. So awesome. Yeah. And sure. by the way, I didn't want to minimize that point to everybody. I know that was a big part of your life and what it did and 4th of July and all that. And I think a lot of veterans, uh, unbeknownst, right. I think you had the, I don't want to say easy, but you had the very, there's a connection. I think there's a lot of veterans out there who don't have the easiest of connections. It's the saying how they got it right or how it's affected them. Right. It's, it's easy to say mortars coming in and and I've heard a lot of right now fireworks. That's a, that's a easy connection that people can kind of make. Whereas there's been a ton of them that uh, are finding connections that they don't have. And let's be realistic. It's, we haven't fought a 20 year war before. Right. So mm-hmm. you're talking about a lot more people than, than what we've ever dealt with and how they're trying to find them. And uh, everybody has their own way. So it's, it's, yeah. uh, I don't want to minimize it in any ways. I'm glad you brought it up at the end. And if anybody wants clarity, I got to plug it, right. Go listen to my uh, <laughs> lion's guide episode with Dan Jarvis called healing our heroes. Cause we really get into the different stigmas and what trauma really is. And because I think still not the, on on about it but a lot of people don't understand what it is you know who, those who have it and those who don't you know and and so anyways but we'll bring this one to close 
Absolutely. Laura, last words. You got anything you want more? I think I said it. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. You get you get to come on next week, anyways. Not as a not so special next week. Now you're just you'll just be normal next Go week. Go get but sirens. That's right. Amazon, get, all get those sirens. Things. Support. Uh, you, you got a website, Laura? They can buy from direct, or do you just go through? The um, I have lauraclover.com, but it's just a link to Amazon, so it's okay. not. Yep. And you, Barnes and Nobles, Walmart.com. I made fun of her this morning for being on a Walmart thing, but it's awesome. It's actually awesome. And I'm really jealous about it, to be honest. And with you. And Audible. That's right. Um, <laughs> next week, uh, on the flip side, Laura will be back uh, as a, again, not so, not so special, uh, but as just a normal co host. That's not true. She's always special. Uh, and we're going to talk about benevolence. So, a little bit about what she was talking about that compassion side, the benevolent side. We'll talk about what that kind of is, what it's turned into with everything going on today's day and age, right? There's a, a bunch of stuff that falls into that. Uh, we'll try not to dive too deep into the politicking side of it all, but just talk about it from a leadership perspective and say, hey, look, why it's important to, to be compassionate towards the people you work with both up and down the chain. So stick with us next week for that. Uh, Dale, what do you got going on? You want to plug anything? Mm, yeah, well, we've got the uh, Everyday Leader survey coming out, so be on the lookout oh, yeah, for that. We've right. got a survey just to kind of get some feedback and research around where leaders are today, where they feel they are, what their challenges are, how they rate themselves, um, so we can work on getting some focused material out to them to help them be better leaders. Yeah, absolutely. And anything for you? Podcast coming up, good one. What do you got? Uh, podcasts are coming out every week. Um, yep. you know, I've got workshops opening back up in September, so happy to have anyone in the uh, virtual or physical ones if you're in the Maryland Eastern Shore area. But yeah, got plenty coming. Sounds well, great. Well, good. Well, listen. Uh, thanks to our viewers on Facebook. Thanks for us on LinkedIn. Thanks for us on YouTube. We appreciate uh, you guys coming out today and listening, whether you're doing it live or whether you're doing it later on. Uh, as always, thanks to our guest, Laura Colbert. Go get her book, Audible, Google. You know where they are. They're all out there. It's How to Peace Standing Up or Sirens. It's a memoir of war. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on. And we'll see everybody later next week. As always, flip out. Have a great week. See you, everyone. Thanks, Laura. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.